sometimes you just can't make this stuff up. Don't we say that often? We hear about something that's going on and we just can't believe it really is true. Well, I read something that really isn't true, but it reminded me of something important. At our church this year, it's the year of the Bible. And so we've been encouraging people to read the Bible in a way that will help them so that the Bible becomes part of them and their thinking and it becomes the guiding influence in their lives. Well, that makes sense. Churches have been doing that. Christians have been doing that for a long time. But I noticed, and it came out way back in January, I didn't see it till much later, but the Babylon Bee, if you're not familiar with the Babylon Bee, you might want to look into them. They are a Christian satire site, and they came out with a post, and it came up with this fictional pastor who came out with the idea of a one-year don't-read-your-Bible plan. And part of the post says, well, you'll never get behind. You'll always be up to date if you don't read your Bible. And after all, if you don't read your Bible, you won't have to change your life because everything will be okay. Because if you don't know what the Bible says, you can do whatever you want to because you don't read your Bible. Well, that's hilarious. Check out the Babylon Bee for the whole post. I won't get into all of it. But it reminded me to remind all of us that this is the year of the Bible and we want to actually wait for it, read the Bible, and take what the Bible says seriously. Well, welcome to Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm really glad you've joined us today. This is the place where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we explore issues and ideas related to Christian faith by looking at what the Bible says and trying to understand it better for ourselves growing through the challenges of the stories of the Bible and stretching in God's direction. We don't want to shrink from what God says to us. We want to stretch toward it and become better people to grow toward Him. I am the pastor of a local church in Cape Coral, Florida, Diplomat Wesleyan Church, so I do understand something about local church life. I do understand something about what we all do week in and week out. And I try to talk as a pastor might talk. I don't pretend to have all the answers. We often, uh, I don't say it often, but really what we do is we think out loud here on America Out Loud because we want to begin to process what the Bible talks about. And I want to encourage you to do the same. Now, you have to have a Bible to do that, and I want to encourage you to get a Bible. That always helps. You know, if you're going to talk about the Bible, you ought to have a Bible. I, I guess that should go without saying, but but maybe some people don't think about that. Now, then you come up against with, well, what Bible should I use? Well, there are a lot of English translations of the Bible, and there aren't many that are weak or bad translations. There are a few. But if you stick to the main ones that people talk about most, things like the New International Version, the New Living Translation, the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible, even the message has its value, and I hope you'll see that in a minute. We'll use that today on the program, the story that we want to look at. I, I thought we'd read it from the message just to kind of point out some interesting things. But remember, this satire site that says a one-year plan for don't read your Bible really has the effectiveness of what a lot of people practice. They don't read. They don't pay attention. So find a way to, to expose yourself to the Bible. That's not the main focus of the program today, but it's a good reminder for all of us that we do need to see what God has to say because what God has to say is important. 
whole lot more important than what I have to say. And that's why we try to focus on what the Bible says during our time together every week. Now, I also came across, it kind of reminded me of some important things, an article that was written by a man named Everett Piper. He's a former Christian college president, and now he does commentary. He has a couple of outlets, and one of them is that he writes a a weekly opinion column for the Washington Times. And I just came across this article that he released last Sunday, and he reminds all of us that we have this problem these days with what is called diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he reminds all of us of all the craziness that goes on with that, and and he does it in a very interesting way. He reminds us that diversity now means division, Equity means some are more equal than others, and inclusion demands that if you don't parrot what's popular, you will be excluded. Well, he's right about that. That's what has become of the diversity, equity, inclusion initiative or emphasis or propaganda. People describe it in different ways. And it's really curious that so many people have come to embrace these ideas and not realized what they're leading to. You know, on the surface of them, those words don't sound so terribly bad. I mean, who can be against inclusion? Except what they mean by that is you're only included if you believe and say what we want you to believe and say. Otherwise, you're excluded. So we need to take these kind of things seriously and understand what they're leading to. But Dr. Piper in this column asks, how did we get here? When we, uh, when we recognize these things for what they are, we have to step back and say, how did we get here? And he says the answer is simple, and I think he's right. I think it's a good reminder to us. He says the answer is simple. We've got our priorities backwards. He then quotes C.S. Lewis from his book, God in the Dock. And Lewis wrote, you can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. Lewis continued, Put first things first, and second things are thrown in. Put second things first, and you lose both first and second things. So how did we get all mixed up in the thinking and the stuff that goes on? And people everywhere are starting to wake up to this and to realize that this doesn't make any sense. And it's not leading to good outcomes. It's turning us against each other. And all of the ideas are, as Piper says, they're going to collapse on themselves. We hope sooner than later. But if Piper's right and he says we haven't got our priorities straight, and if Lewis is right, C.S. Lewis is right, that we have to keep first things first, then the next question, and Dr. Piper answers that in his way in this article, by helping us identify what are first things. And here, Piper turns to Jesus, and he says, and he quotes Jesus' words, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So Jesus is talking about how we seek the kingdom of God first, we seek the righteousness of God first, and when we do that, everything will fall into place. If we make God's way, truth, and life our first thing, then all the rest, the second things, will fall in place and be given to us as well, says C.S. Lewis. And that's an important reminder, because we often get things scrambled in the way we think about life and the way we approach life. 
we look at what we would like to have, and so we try to make those haves happen instead of realizing that when we put God first, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then we will understand that all of the other things will fall into place. And I think that's both a helpful reminder from a pastor and also a helpful beginning to look at this story that we're going to talk about today, because in this story, Jesus is challenging us to put first things first. He is challenging us to realize what really matters about life and living. And so I want us to take a look at this story from the Gospel of John. We've been looking at several stories. This is the fourth one now that we've looked at of people having encounters with Jesus over important important issues. We talked about Nicodemus coming to Jesus. We talked about the woman at the well and there and the conversation she had with Jesus. We talked about the man born blind last week and how he received his sight. Jesus sent him to the pool of Siloam to wash the mud off his eyes and he could see. Remarkable story. And so now we come to another encounter that Jesus has with people of his day. And this one, the stakes are even higher than a man born blind. The stakes are even much higher because his dear friend Lazarus is very sick. And if you know the rest of the story, and we'll read that here together, you know that Lazarus ultimately died. But then there's more to the story because that isn't the end of the story. So now stories are... I think, very interesting and helpful in the Bible. I was having a conversation with someone just this morning about how important it is that we teach children the stories of the Bible. If the children learn the stories of the Bible, they will be able to put so many things in perspective in their life over time and make connections between things, and they can build on their understanding of the Bible story. I guess I think that largely because there was a a dedicated woman She was an elementary school teacher. I didn't have her for class. She taught in the class across the hall from my second grade class. But every Sunday, every Sunday evening, while the adults and other people were doing something else, she took responsibility for us, the kids. And she taught us the Bible stories, particularly focused on the Old Testament Bible stories. But we learned a lot of other ones as well. I remember very little of the specifics of the class, except that I remember thinking I was too grown up, I was too big to be in that class with all the little kids, which was preposterous. But it was the way kids think, of course. But I also remember how much I learned and how much I appreciated that in the years after I got out of high school and and then began to study the Bible more seriously. I, I cannot overstate how glad I was that she taught us the stories of the Bible. And that's really was her focus the whole time. She taught us the stories of the Bible. So if, you're, if you have kids or if you're around kids or if your church is wondering what to do with kids and how to teach them, teach them the stories of the Bible. Don't entertain them. Teach them the stories of the Bible. They will find them fascinating and they will love them. Remember, when you teach them the stories of the Bible, you are teaching them what God is trying to communicate to all of us. And when you do that, you can be absolutely confident the Holy Spirit is helping you. So stories of the Bible matter. Now, what else do I think about stories of the Bible? Well, 
one of the things that we do here is we try to understand, and so we try to interpret what the Bible says to us in our times. And, and we look at it carefully, and we think about it deeply, and we try to peel back the layers that we don't understand because ancient times were very different than our times. And I was thinking about that as it relates to stories. And, you know, stories, we study those sometimes in English literature classes, and we talk about the motivations of the characters and the things that are going on, and what might they be thinking here, and why did they say that there. And so we process these stories through all kinds of different perspectives, perspectives of the character, perspectives of the setting, perspectives of the, perspectives of the times in which they live, all of those kind of things. And one of the things that I'm really conscious of is that we can process Bible stories in much the same way. We can begin to look at them, and, and this is a good example, the story of, of Lazarus. And we can begin to process them and help us think through them. I think the stories are a, a wonderful beginning. If you want to have a Bible study and get some people together, concentrate on the stories of the Bible and, and talk about them. What does this mean? Why did this happen? Uh, where does this lead us? What, what's the point that the Bible's trying to make? What's the, what's the message for us today? What guidance do we get? What hope do we get? What inspiration is there? What promise of the future comes jumping off the page at us when we read the stories of the Bible? So, if you want to start a Bible study, and if you're a little concerned that you don't know enough, and none of us knows enough, just trust me on that, Get a Bible study together and start reading the stories from the Gospels, the stories of what Jesus did, what he said, and begin to process those. And I, I agree with Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was a longtime pastor. He's the man who gave us the message, the English Bible called the message. I agree with him. I read once that he said he believed that when people got together and had a conversation about the Bible, they would gather about 80% of what God wanted us to understand from it just by their interaction, their conversation, their focus on the text, trying to ask and answer questions from the Bible. You can do that too. And that's what I think is the best Bible study. I don't think you need a lot of fancy curriculum to, to benefit from the Bible study. Just the Bible stories and half a dozen, maybe a dozen people that you can talk about what does the Bible say, what does it mean, what's that ha have to say to us today, what do we do about it, those kinds of things. So don't give up on the Bible stories. They really are insightful. So since I say that, let's take a look. Let's take a look at this Bible story. I'm going to read it from John chapter 11, quite a number of verses. It's not a short story, a lot of information here. We won't get to all of it. We'll get to some of it. And I'm going to read from Eugene Peterson's English translation called The Message. I find that definitely tells the story, and it definitely helps us get a grasp of it. And I kind of decided to do this because I want you to get a, a little different sense of the way the Bible might communicate when it's telling us a story. Starting John chapter 11, verse 1. A man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the same Mary who massaged the Lord's feet with aromatic oils and then wiped them with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Master, the one you love so very much is sick. When Jesus got the message, he said, This sickness is not fatal. 
it will become an occasion to show God's glory by glorifying God's Son. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but oddly, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed on where he was for two more days. After the two days, he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. They said, Rabbi, you can't do that. The Jews are out to kill you, and you're going back? Jesus replied, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in daylight doesn't stumble because there's plenty of light from the sun. Walking at night, he might very well stumble because he can't see where he's going. He said these things and then announced, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. The disciples said, Master, if he's gone to sleep, he'll get a good rest and wake up feeling fine. Jesus was talking about death, while his disciples thought he was talking about taking a nap. Then Jesus became explicit. Lazarus died, and I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. You're about to be given new grounds for believing. Now, let's go to him. That's when Thomas, the one called the twin, said to his companions, Come along, we might as well die with him. When Jesus finally got there, he found Lazarus already dead four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away, and many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary, sympathizing with them over their brother. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, he will give you. Jesus said, Your brother will be raised up. Martha replied, I know he will be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. You don't have to wait for the end. I am, right now, resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Master. All along I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. After saying this, she went to her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, The teacher is here and is asking for you. The moment she heard that, she jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathizing Jewish friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking she was on her way to the tomb to weep there. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. He said, Where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. The Jews said, Look how deeply he loved him. Others among them said, Well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the eyes of a blind man. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus looked her in the eye. 
Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then to the others, go ahead, take away the stone. They removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know you always do listen, but on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out! And he came out, a cadaver wrapped from head to toe and with a kerchief over his face. Jesus told them, Unwrap him and let him loose. That was a turnaround for many of the Jews who were, who were with Mary. They saw what Jesus did and believed in him. But some went back to the Pharisees and told on Jesus. The high priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the ruling body, Jewish ruling body. What do we do now, they asked. This man keeps on doing things, creating God's signs. If we let him go on, pretty soon everyone will be believing in him, and the Romans will come and remove what little power and privilege we still have. And then we skip down a couple of verses just to conclude it. From that day on, they plotted to kill him. Well, there's the story of, of Lazarus, the man who died and then came back to life, who had a resuscitation. Some would call it a resurrection, but not exactly. He had a resuscitation because he came back to life, but would one day die again. We usually use the word resurrection in reference to the resurrection of Jesus, who came back to life and lives on and will never die again. So the setting of this is someplace outside of Bethany before Jesus and his disciples travel to Bethany, but then most of the action takes place right in that area of Bethany, either just outside the town or at the tomb. And Jerusalem is just over the horizon from Bethany. It's about two miles. I don't know that there's an exact measurement of that. It kind of depends upon where you're going, I suppose, but it's really kind of up the hill and down the hill and up the hill, and there's Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is the scene of many of the pictures that you've seen of Jerusalem looking out over the Kidron Valley to the city itself, you'd go the other direction from Jerusalem to Bethany. And there's a well-worn path there, the road that exists today existed in Jesus' time. Same road he would have walked down when he went to Jerusalem, would have walked up the hill when he went back to Bethany. And some people have remarked, and I think it's absolutely, absolutely important to notice this, Here's a story that really seems to focus on the death of Lazarus and then Lazarus being resuscitated. But it's really pointing to the death of Jesus that would take place just a couple of miles down the road and just over the horizon, both in geography and in time. And Jesus would die, but his resurrection would be forever. Now, we don't know a lot about the actual journey of Jesus from where he was and first got word about Lazarus' illness to Bethany. We do know that he did not arrive before Lazarus died, and there was some concern about that, and it was expressed by the, by the sisters. But really, in all likelihood, Lazarus had died before Jesus got word that he was sick. So they sent for Jesus, and if we, and it's, and it's a pretty safe 
uh, assumption or or conclusion to draw, a pretty safe conclusion that it would have taken about a day for a messenger to get to Jesus. And then um, he would have waited, as it says, two days and then traveled back. So it would have been several days, in fact, four days, as you hear the text explain it. And people have wondered about that. And, and Jesus gives one explanation to his disciples that, well, it's going to be an opportunity for for them to grow in their faith, and it was, and it's also an opportunity for, for God to bring glory to Jesus, and it was. And people kind of wonder about this idea that Jesus waited, but there's another perhaps important factor that we sometimes don't know about because we're just not aware of the cultural setting of the time. But in those days, there was a belief, and it's kind of remarkable that they believed this, really remarkable that they believed this, but there was a belief that that when someone died, the soul lingered nearby for three days, and they weren't absolutely certain that someone had died until after the three days, so on the fourth day, they could be certain that someone had died. Now, I'm not here to defend that perspective or try to explain why they thought that. That's just a prevailing view. We know that from historical records. So it's entirely possible that Jesus waited that extra time to make sure that he got there after there was no no doubt that Lazarus had died. You certainly wouldn't want people saying, well, he wasn't really dead and Jesus didn't do a miracle. Well, he was really dead and Jesus did do a miracle, and we don't want to overlook that. So that's an important that's an important thing to understand going into it, that's for sure. It's also interesting that that they cautioned Jesus not to go because they were afraid he would be killed. And that was a very tr- true and real risk. We know that because of other incidences that are recorded in the gospel story. And they tried to get him to stop, and Jesus said, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to go there. And he uses some kind of interesting explanations for that. And, and finally, the disciples say, well, okay, if he's going to die, we may as well die too, which is kind of a weirdly pessimistic way they st- said that. But for Jesus, it's really interesting when you think about this, for Jesus, he doesn't seem to be concerned about the risk of death. He seems to be concerned that he would not do what he needed to do and to accomplish the work of God in the world and, and accomplish the will of God. And I think that's an important lesson for us. Sometimes we get a little concerned about things, and if we keep the main thing the main thing, accomplishing what God has called us to do, we'll be a whole lot better off and we won't have the, the problems we might have otherwise. It's, uh, it's very interesting. And, and, of course, Jesus had both the sense of what would take place with the, with the resuscitation of Lazarus, but he also had the sense that, that in all of this, his disciples would see something they had not seen before, and that they would begin to grow in their understanding of Jesus. And, and it kind of makes me ask the question, are some of the things that we face, you and I, the difficulties of life, that we wish didn't happen? And believe me, there's a lot of them I wish didn't happen to a lot of people. But is it possible that some of these circumstances that come along, maybe not the death of a loved one, but maybe some of the other things, are put there so that God can strengthen our confidence in Him, can strengthen our faith, can strengthen our absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? Because God, Jesus, proved Himself trustworthy in this story. And maybe instead of 
bemoaning the bad things that happen, and there are plenty of them. We live in some really trying times. Maybe we should use them as opportunities to say, Lord, by your grace, I will renew my confidence in you, and I will strengthen my conviction that I can trust you, and I will not waver from that at all. Because ultimately, ultimately it led to led to the miracle that Lazarus came back out of that grave. We need to think about how our lives might reflect better outcomes if we reminded ourselves to have more confidence in Jesus. Now, it's also interesting that that he uses the word that Lazarus was asleep. And before the break, I want to just leave you with this. There's a little bit of a play on words there. Lazarus being asleep, we all understand that the disciples said, well, he'll wake up feeling better because sometimes when you fall asleep when you're ill, you sleep it off and you feel better when you wake up. And um, Jesus kind of talks about things in a little different way. And really, he was saying that that um, one of these days, you'll understand this better, but he's he's really died, and I'm going to resuscitate him, and he will be saved. And there's a play on words that allows us to say confidently that Jesus communicates to all of us through this story that one day all things will be saved and we can be saved by trusting in him. And that's an important message, don't you think? He put himself squarely in the middle of all of this by describing himself as the resurrection and the life. He was the one by which we come alive and stay alive, and that's an important part of the message of Lazarus from this story. Well, I don't want you to forget that, and I don't want you to get distracted by some of the other things in the story. We are going to talk about a few more things, particularly Jesus' view of and and handling of death. That's really an important subject for us, and we want to talk about that when we get back from our break. So you take a break, renew your thinking, take a breath, have a drink, a cup of tea, and we'll be back in just a few minutes, and we'll talk some more about Lazarus and his resuscitation. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com, seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. This is Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we stretch in God's direction because we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we work real hard. We have spiritual disciplines and other things to help us to develop that confidence that God is trustworthy and we are determined 
to develop faith and confidence in him. Well, we've been talking about Lazarus and, and the faith of a disciple of his of Jesus' disciples was strengthened. The faith of Mary and Martha was tested, and all of them came out with a new, a renewed, a grown confidence in God, and it, particularly in Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. We're going to get back to that story in just a minute because there are a few more things we want to talk about. But before we do, we've been exploring the hymns that every Christian should know. About three weeks ago, I guess we started this, and I explained that our church spent quite a number of weeks, more weeks than I thought it would take, but we did it carefully, and we identified the ten hymns that every Christian should know. Now, these weren't our favorite hymns. A lot of them turn out to be one person's favorite or another, but the idea was not to pick favorites. The idea was to pick the hymns every Christian should know. And so we started out talking about those, and I began to give a little background on on all of them so that we could understand them better. And we started out with number 10, Jesus Loves Me. And then we talked about number 9, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. And then last week, number 8, Holy, Holy, Holy. And now this week, number 7, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. That's the seventh hymn in our list of the hymns every Christian should know. I don't suppose that comes as a great surprise because that hymn has been a part of the church for a very long time. It was written in 1855, I believe. Let me double check my notes here because I'm pretty sure I got that right. 1855 was when it was written, and that's a long time ago. It was first published in 1857. So if you're looking for a publishing date, that's different. But that's not too unusual. A hymn would be written before it's published, of course. And it was written by a guy who was Irish by background. He was actually born in Ireland. He moved to Canada and lived in Canada for the remainder of his life. So he was an immigrant to Canada. And he lived in Port Hope, Ontario. And I thought that was quite intriguing because I lived in Ontario, not Port Hope, Ontario. But I lived in Ontario for a while. And the sad part about Joseph Scriven's life was that he had a really rather difficult set of circumstances throughout his life. It, it was not an easy thing for him. And part of it was because he was determined the best he knew to live faithfully to God, and, and that caused him to, to take on some challenges that he maybe didn't need to take on. That's my kind of assumption from reading the story. But nonetheless, he was trying very hard to be faithful to God, He had some health problems when he was younger, and so his plans for life got changed because he just didn't have the physical ability to follow through on those. He did move to Ontario, and he was going to get married. But on the eve before his wedding, his fiancée died tragically in a drowning accident. And you can imagine the heartbreak that would cause. Well, Scriven continued on, and in the course of time, he met someone else, and he was planning to get married again. But for the second time, his fiancée died. This time, she died suddenly from an illness not long before their wedding. And you and I can hardly imagine the difficulties he would have faced. It was difficult times in lots of ways. It was a hard economy. He struggled to find work. He lived an impoverished life, much of his life having to depend on friends to help him, acquaintances to give him a place to stay, those kinds of things. And 
it just never seemed to let up for him. As much as he tried to do good, he just seemed to have so many difficulties. But in the midst of all of that, and maybe because of all of that, he wrote this hymn that we all identified as one of the hymns every Christian should know. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. Well, thanks to Joseph Scriven, we have a hymn that has so much meaning to so many people. And as I was thinking about this, I, I couldn't help noticing that what other people have noticed, I wasn't the first one, but that he repeats the line, take it to the Lord in prayer so many times. And I just wonder sometimes if maybe we forget to do that. And we need to take our concerns to the Lord and let him deal with them. We don't need to carry all that stuff. We just need to have confidence that he's trustworthy. And I think that's part of what this hymn writer, Joseph Scriven, was trying to say to us. What a friend we have in Jesus. We should treat him like a friend, don't you think? I thought you'd agree. Well, let's go back to this story of Lazarus and Jesus' encounter here. And and I, as I was reading, uh, now I first started reading this. I know I read for us from the message, but I first started reading this in the Bible that I usually use when I'm working on things like this. And 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 that's okay. I mean, I go back and forth from different ones. I, I don't I don't feel bound to one and only one. But I was reading through it in the New Revised Standard Version Update Edition. And I and I read along and I read along and I read the story. And then in verse 37, I read this. Well, starting with verse 36, maybe will help. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And I think I said out loud as I was reading that alone in my office here, I think I said, there it is. There it is. See, that's the nub of what a lot of people get hung up on, isn't it? That's what a lot of people worry about. That's what a lot of people kind of, they don't know what to do about that kind of stuff. They don't quite know how to handle it. And and I think we need to think about that a little bit more. I think we need to think about what happens when when it doesn't work out the way we want it to. Does that mean we don't have confidence that God is trustworthy? Of course not. When will the day ever come that we know everything that God knows? And so sometimes when I don't get things to work out the way I'd like them to, I have to remind myself, God knows, and he is trustworthy. He has demonstrated that by sending his son. He's demonstrated that in the stories of the Bible, and I need to demonstrate to him that I trust him. And it seems to me that that we hear an awful lot from people who 
complain about how God did this or didn't stop that, and how God could have intervened and changed their circumstances if he'd wanted to, but he didn't, and I'm ticked at him for that. We don't hear nearly enough from people, and you might be one of these people. I want to encourage you to speak up. We don't hear near enough from people who who have gone through the hard times of losing someone close to them, of having absolutely bitter life experiences, but who will stand up and say, by the grace of God, I am persevering because I trust in a God I can trust. And I know, I believe in him, I know him well enough to know that he is looking out for my well-being and I wouldn't have chosen these circumstances, but God allowed them to happen and I'm going to trust him. Don't we need more testimonies like that? Well, of course we do. Instead of people saying, well, if he could have done that, he could have done this. And that's, that's us judging Jesus. That's us putting ourselves in the place of God instead of trusting him to work things out as he knows best. So that's one of those pivotal verses that we need to think about as we go along. Now, the other thing I was thinking about was this business of death. Now, we already talked a little bit about the idea that when Jesus used the word sleep, he was using it kind of in both sides of things. They thought he meant Lazarus had fallen asleep and would wake up better. He meant that Lazarus had died. But we should face this issue of of death head on, don't you think? And I've thought a lot about that because when you're a pastor, you conduct funerals from time to time, and you have to walk through some difficult days with people, and it's, it's necessary. I don't shrink from it, but I don't particularly look forward to it either, because we all know that death is our enemy, and the wages of sin is death, and so death has entered the human condition, and we have to deal with it. So I've been thinking about this idea of death and how Jesus talks to to Mary and Martha about do they believe and do they see that he is the resurrection and the life. And we read that verse, that verse that talks about Jesus being the resurrection and the life at many funerals. So it comes right out of this passage. And one of the things that occurred to me many years ago now, I don't think it occurred to me soon enough, but I'd never heard anybody say it this way. So I was kind of taken aback when I was thinking about it and really kind of reluctant to, to express it this way for a long time. And I, I don't mean any, any lack of concern for people who have lost people to death. We all have. But in a very real sense, hold on, are you sitting down, fasten your spiritual seatbelt here for just a minute. In a very real sense, death is no big deal to God, the one who created the heavens and the earth. It was God who created people and breathed into people the breath of life. And so death, life, God can handle it all. When the believer dies and goes to be with the Lord, it's just what it is. And God can handle it completely. And he understands it completely. Now, they were correct in the story and saying to Jesus that you can ask of God and he'll do whatever you want him to do. We understood that. They understood what was possible. And we understand what was possible. And so because of that, they understood that death was not a problem that, that Jesus couldn't solve. Of course, he could solve it. And he did in that case, but he doesn't in all cases. We kind of have to deal with that, don't we? And recognize that God knows better than I will ever know. And I just trust him. 
It's not as easy to do as it is to say. I will agree with that. But it's still what God expects of me to trust him. And the more I learn to trust him, the more I develop that confidence in him, the better off I will be. Now, while on the one hand, death is not significant to God as creator, I said that because God breathed into people the breath of life. Death is very significant when you think of it and you think of God as our covenant partner or our substitute. See, Jesus, when he came into the world, he stepped into the human condition to represent us. Now, Lazarus, as I mentioned earlier, was going to be saved. Jesus said that, and there was a little play on words in the original language we don't pick up on immediately, but the whole point is that Lazarus will recover, and Lazarus will be saved. And we can take that as a promise to us that when we trust in Jesus, we will be saved, because he talked about that resurrection and all of that with Mary and Martha. It's very, very clear. But Jesus took it seriously, and as we move through Lent and approach Holy Week and begin to think about the implications of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, then we understand that that God is our covenant partner. He understands, understands the ramifications of death very well. And while all death is temporary to God, only Lazarus' death in this story was temporary to him, his disciples, and the others. And Jesus' death, while temporary because he was resurrected, paid a penalty for sin that resulted in all of this other stuff we call death, and we experience with death. So I think we need to think about death in in a little bit, how should I say, deeper perspective. I don't think it necessarily ends our horror at the idea of death. I, I don't like it a bit. Let's just be honest. I don't imagine you like it a bit. But it was never intended for us. God didn't create us to have to die. That was our own doing, our own sin. And Jesus paid a terrible price and took it very seriously when he went to the cross. And that brings me to a little discussion of the emotions of Jesus. I've been noticing over the years, and you may have noticed it too, that people get kind of caught up in thinking about Jesus and his emotions. And some of what I think people get caught up in is they want to justify their own strong feelings by saying, well, Jesus did too. And that always makes me nervous because that seems to be the wrong way to go about it. We should look at Jesus' emotions and say, okay, now, what about the way he reacted to situations? Can we learn from that? Not as a way to justify our own potential nonsense. Does that make sense? We let the Bible speak into our lives. We don't take our lives and then try to make the Bible uh, agree with our own experience or our, or our own perspective. Now, throughout this story, and you can read it in different ways, there are, there are different expressions that Jesus had strong feelings. And when you peel back the original language, you'll notice that there are different words for the different emotions. And we're not going to get into the details of that. As much as to say, we need to ask ourselves some some good questions. What was Jesus feeling? What were his emotions? And and what was he what was he um, feeling so strongly about? And and one of the things that seems pretty clear is that he did have strong, very strong emotions, and he did have 
a little bit more quiet reaction to some things. And one of the writers described Jesus' emotions as being very indignant. It was a strong display. He was deeply moved. He was indignant as though as though he was angry because he found himself face to face with what Satan and the kingdom of evil was doing, bringing death to people. And so sometimes people forget that Jesus' emotions here may not have been simple. They may have been much more complex than we realize. And, and he may have come face to face with this idea of death. And it wouldn't have been new to him. Of course, he'd lived longer than that. But, it, but he came to the realization of death and its implications and what it did to the people he cared about. And he was just indignant over that. And it just upset him in a strong way. Well, you and I feel that way when we see that take place in the life of someone else. We get really upset by that. And, and it's okay. I think we should. Uh, another person said that, that, well, maybe Jesus was, and, and it could be all of these, by the way, and maybe Jesus was upset and they make a very strong case for this, that he was upset because of the unbelief of the people around him. And he had been trying to get the disciples to, to grow in his direction, to strengthen their confidence in him. He, he told them that they would see God's glory, and Mary and Martha, much the same way, while they were tested, because he kept asking them, do you believe? Do you have that kind of confidence in God? Do you have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? Would be another way of saying that. And so their faith was really tested and stretched. And, and so Jesus' re- strong reaction may have been to, to all of the people in the story and the recognition of how much they struggled to believe and how much unbelief was still present in the lives of the people there. Well, that, that kind of is a shock to us because we don't think about the disciples struggling with belief or anybody else. But maybe Jesus was upset about that because... He wanted them to believe. So the impact of sin on all of them would have been one thing. And, and maybe Jesus was really deeply moved that they just couldn't get past things to believe in him because he put belief in him squarely in the middle of this story. Go back and read it. You'll notice that. There was no doubt that he put himself there. And he, he could very well have been, been deeply moved by that. And then, of course, it says Jesus wept. And in that particular instance, it may be that he simply wept in the way you and I would weep over the loss of a friend. And in fact, the text does mention that, that some of the observers were struck by that because they realized how much Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So all of those things could have been going on. You and I, when we experience strong feelings, we don't tend to experience them on just one level. We have a multifaceted encounters with some very strong feelings from time to time. And so why wouldn't Jesus have that same encounter with strong feelings about unbelief, strong feelings about the devastating impact of sin on people, strong feelings that he realized the, the hard, hard, trial of losing a loved one, in this case, a brother. But where does the story end up? Well, it ends up at a grave. It ends up with Jesus saying, roll the stone away. And it was very common. They would use a cave like this, and they would roll the stone away to have access to it. And yes, there was concern. And that's very well portrayed in the story about the state of the body. But Jesus says, trust me, They roll the stone away, and he calls Lazarus by name and has him come forth. 
Now, many people have commented about this, and you've probably heard this before, uh, that they think Jesus called Lazarus by name because if he had just said, come forth, then everybody might have come out. And there were many, many times graves were shared in these cave-like enclosures. But Lazarus comes out, and he's still all bound in the, in the traditional way they would have wrapped a body to prepare it for burial. And so they had to help him out of that. And they did. And Lazarus came back to life just like that. How do you respond to that? What does that does that give you greater faith? Does that make you concerned? Well, in the story, many people saw that and believed in Jesus and other people went and reported Jesus to the authorities. And they were concerned because if Jesus keeps doing this kind of stuff, everybody's going to believe in him and they're going to leave us on the outs. And the very last part of the scriptures that I read was that they purposed to kill Jesus. You know, that's really where we're left in this story is what will we do with Jesus? Walking all the way through the incidents of Lazarus' illness and death and Jesus' delay, his arrival, his challenge, his conversations with his disciples, his um, consolation with Martha, then with Mary, All of this stuff leads us to this point that Lazarus walks out of the grave here. And and some people like this part of it. They like, they say the favorite part of there is Lazarus comes out and here's a dead man walking. I don't want to be irreverent, but it made me think of all this nonsense that people get caught up in about a zombie apocalypse. Well, here's Jesus walking out and he is now resuscitated. And we are left with the challenge Will we believe in Jesus that he really is the way, the truth, and the life? Or will we walk away and realize that we have to lay our lives down and our preferences down and our wishes down to follow him? Will we do that and worship him? You see, the choice in the, in the story is quite clear. Either kill Jesus or worship Jesus. And we kind of go, yo, whoa, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Is it really that? Well, that's what happened in the story. People ended up either wanting to kill Jesus or deciding to worship him. And so the question kind of comes down to us. When Jesus calls for us to step out of where we've been, to come out and be loosed of the things that bind us, we have to ask ourselves, will we believe him? Will we step out when we hear his call and leave our preferences behind? Will we step out and put him first? Will we step out and leave our addictions behind us? Will we step out and say, no more, I can't be that person any longer? What do we need to let Jesus loose us from? If they untied Lazarus and loosened those bindings that they had used to prepare his body for burial. If they untied him, what is it that Jesus wants to untie in your life? What knots are you finding yourself in that he wants to untie? And will you let him? You see, that's what it means to decide to either kill Jesus or worship him. If you worship him and you recognize that he is the resurrection and the life, he can and he will untie the knots in your life. And you might say, well, how do I know that? Well, you know that because you got to put first things first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. That's where we started, remember? So the question is, will you seek him first and let the other things become untied and fall away? Or will you let them continue to tie you hand and foot so that you barely can struggle through life? Jesus said to the people there, Loose Lazarus and let him go. And I say to you, let Jesus set you free from all the things. Don't let anything keep you from absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because he is faithful and we can have faith in him. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Let's talk again next week.